And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hey friends, Jane here. First, I wanted to give a special shout out to Jeremy White. You haven't heard from him, and that's because he's been working behind the scenes, helping us get set up and editing each episode. We're lucky to have Jeremy as part of the Love the Cove team. In today's episode, we sat down with Jonathan Wilson, historian and covenant pastor, currently serving at Salem Covenant Church in rural Pennock, West Central Minnesota, as he shared about the Moravians and what we as the covenant can learn from them. But first, Sally Carlson and I talk about her journey and experiences in the Evangelical Covenant Church. Sally, I'm just so happy to have you here on our podcast today. Um, could you tell us kind of who you are, where you're serving today? Okay, I'm Sally Carlson, and I currently live in Shoreline, Washington. Um, I just started as associate pastor at Shoreline Covenant Church, um, but I grew up in Minnesota and in the Twin Cities area, and I've kind of lived in a lot of different places. I lived in, lived and worked in Chicago, in Saskatchewan, in Alberta, and now Washington. So I kind of have bounced around back and forth between the can- Canada and the U.S. and different places over the years. Um, but yeah, but right now, most currently, I'm just north of Seattle, and it's fun. It's not, winter is different here, and I like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. How many years have you been part of the covenant now? Um, we started attending a covenant church when I was, I think, in third grade. So I oh, do okay. I have to tell how old I am? No, I'm just kidding. But it's been <laughs> it's actually, well, and I'd have to count a lot of numbers, but it's been a while, like most of my most of my life. But I believe we were mm-hmm. in about my brother and I were about nine, maybe, when we started attending the covenant church down the street. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting mm-hmm. Well, not an interesting story, kind of like a typical, like almost what you hope to hear kind of a story. So my parents Mm -hmm. both grew up, well, my mom didn't really grow up attending church, but my dad did. He was, they're Lutherans from Northern Minnesota and, but both stopped going to church when they went away to school, kind of like, you know, done with that. But when they had kids, they were like, oh, we need to make sure our kids go to Sunday school and do all those right things. And so they kind of, we attended church a little bit, but. I don't really remember that very well. Um, But after my parents got divorced, my dad um, needed something different. I think we kind of talked about, I still don't even know what all happened at whatever church we were going to, but um, our next door neighbors actually attended Roseville Covenant Church, which was right down the street from us. And they had been inviting us and inviting us and inviting us. And I remember doing some church shopping, but we, that's, when we went to Roseville Covenant, it was like, oh yeah, this is where we're supposed to go. Like, um, they and they were a great, great church. Um, I again, I was pretty young, but like Jerry Rice was the pastor, and he was really great to my dad as this like newly divorced guy with two kids. And the kids program was amazing. Like, I still think of the folks that like invested tons of time in that kids program. Like Wendy Sorvik was the children's pastor, or I don't know what her title was. I just remember she was like in charge. Um, and they had a choir, children's choir, and they did musicals, but it was right down the street. So my brother and I could like walk there and do stuff. And they were just really great to our 
little family of three that was going through hard times and, and our, yeah, but they were, it was totally because of my neighbors um, inviting us and just being awesome people. And then the, the folks at Roseville Covenant, like coming around us and being really supportive in that way. Um, but the, one of the reasons why we stayed in the covenant though, is when my dad got remarried and we moved to Bloomington. So on the South, a South suburb of Minneapolis, my dad was out walking the dog and he was like, Hey, you'd never guess what's like, right. Just a few blocks away, another one of those covenant churches. And so, um, and so we just kept, kept going. Like it was kind of happenstance that we lived so close, but but it really was a, a God thing because the people at Bloomington Covenant were amazing. Like um, we, we were a blended family, like my, so I had two step siblings, like we were trying to figure out how to be a family of six after, you know, these two halves had been families of three. And so the folks at, at Bloomington Covenant were really, really great to us. Like awesome. <laughs> uh, like my, my junior high and those early high school years were really hard because, you know, home life was, we'll just say wild. Um, and, and so like our associate pastor, my confirmation teacher, Bruce Lawson, like Bruce and Carol, their kids were my age. They were just faithful, steady people who invested in us and in my brother and I and cared about us a lot. And when I was in grade nine, they hired a youth pastor, um, Mark Harder, who like, oh man, him and Sylvia, they were like, I'm still following Jesus basically because of them, because they cared about my brother and I like came to all of our, all, or Mark came to some of my volleyball games, like, you know, took us out for ice cream, but just was really present. They were both really present to us and shared us a lot about Jesus. And Mark is also the first person who kind of introduced me to Canada because he was from Manitoba. And so when I, <laughs> that was my first taste of how awesome Canada is as a place. Um, but yeah. And so it was, through those high school years, I attended Chick and did all of those covenant things. I went to Covenant Pines and did all that stuff. But um, yeah, my years at in Bloomington were great. My dad got divorced during that time too, and they were really supportive. Um, you know, through all the the family turmoil that was going on, you have these two teens that just need people to come around them and care about them. Like they really, they really were quite present. So, like every so often I'll come across someone else, like one of my old youth leaders or someone because they're, they're out there, like some even more covenant pastors and stuff out there. Um, and, and I'm just reminded of how wonderful they, they were and, and how I wouldn't be like the follower of Jesus. I am without them today. I attended covenant Bible college my for my first year out of high school. Again, I mentioned that my youth pastor was Canadian. He, he didn't go to CBC, but it kind of was like, I think somebody came to camp and told us about CBC and, and I went there. It was a one-year discipleship school that um, the covenant had in Canada that the Canadian conference started. And, and that was a life-changing year for me. And I still don't know if I would have said I was covenant then, but, but um, I mean, I went to a covenant church, but, and then went to this covenant Bible college and, and learned a lot about discipleship and, you know, what it meant to, you know, kind of, I mean, it sounds like it's something we say all the time in college, we're like make your faith your own, but like learn more about what it means to dig deeper into the Bible, to serve, to be, um, 
you know, it was, I mean, their motto was equipping men and women to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So like, that was what I was learning. Um, and then after that, I went to North Park. And that was when I realized that I think looking back, that's probably when I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I really was already covenant since I did like, oh, how did I go end up doing like all these super covenant things? Um, but I knew I wanted to attend North Park, not necessarily because it was covenant, because but because I really wanted to go to a school in the city. Like we had visited there when I was in high school with our youth group. We like went to Japuza and then had one day where we did that. And I really liked the thought of going to the city. Like a lot of my Christian friends were going to other, other awesome schools like Bethel and stuff like that. But I wanted to kind of get out of Minnesota and also get out of the suburbs and go to the city. And so North Park really, you know, that, that was really why I wanted to go to North Park because it was unique because so many Christian schools were, yeah, at the time I wouldn't have named it this way, but they were kind of like super white suburban, whatever. But now I would say that's, I could name that more. Like it was something different. And I liked being in the, you know, uh, neighborhood filled with different kinds of people from all over the world. And, you know, just the, that nest was what I was craving. So when did it click to you like that you were covenant? Like what about the covenant that became distinct to you? Like, oh no, like this is where I want to yeah. be. I like, yeah. Oh, so that's interesting. That's really interesting. Cause like I said, I wound up going to, you know, CBC and then North park, both these like covenant schools. I think it was sometime during that time that I really started to feel like I was covenant. Cause before that we attended a covenant church, but um, I'm not sure that I, well, I didn't really know what the covenant was. Like, I mean, I went through confirmation. I learned all the things, <laughs> but um, I don't, I took it for, I took for granted what I learned, like, and um, that that was just sort of, isn't that what everybody thinks? Isn't that what all the Christians think is, you know, what I learned at these covenant churches. Um, and so it was when I went to CBC and to North Park, where my kind of horizons were broadened a little bit about like, um, kind of what other churches are like, or who or experiencing divergent opinions, even amongst students that went to covenant churches. Like, I mean, I'll remember some of the conversations that we had that I was like, I didn't know this was a thing. Like women in ministry, I remember. Like some of those conversations that came up at CBC that I was just like, what? Like, this is, a, I just thought it was, you know, where we were. <laughs> and, and so um, the more I learned about the covenant in those contexts, the more I realized that, yeah, this is who I, this is where I belong. This is who I am. Or this is the, this is the little corner of the kingdom that I want to be a part of. And, and really like, again, the more I think about it, it was, it was those folks at Covenant Bible College, I think that to me still um, embody a lot of the covenant for me. So folks like, um, Brett Widman and Kathy Brawley, Neil Josephson, Del Pease, Todd Slecta, like all this, name all the names, um, Brian Frable, um, because they were, it was there and with them that I learned about really about who the covenant is and like theologically and like our kind of our mission and who we are. And so I think it was because of their walking alongside with me. Like, I mean, it was, like this CBC was just like kind of this incubator of, you know, where you can learn a lot about yourself and all about God. And, and so um, they really modeled to me a lot about the covenant and, 
and where we stand and, and the breadth again of kind of our affirmations and that, you know, we don't all have to believe exactly the same thing, but we all can follow Jesus together. You know, we, you can think different you, things theologically about X or Y, but we still will follow Jesus together. And also that it's okay to like change your mind, uh, be transformed, like to learn. Oh gosh. Like, you know, um, because there's, there is some, there are some folks that have a harder time with that. Like kind of think this is what I grew up hearing to hear something different is mind blowing. But for me, I had this steady stream of people who were asking good questions and walking alongside me as I like struggled through different things and stuff. So um, I think it, it was sometime in that like early 20s space between when I attended CBC, attended North Park and went back and worked at, I worked at Covenant Bible College for three years as well. It was during those times, like we'll say 20 to 25, age 20 to 25, when I really decided that the covenant was for me. And then also, I also think it's like the Canada Conference made a difference with that too, because I mean, they are they were small and kind of, uh, I got to visit while I was at CBC, I got to visit almost every single church in that conference. And so you get the chance to just meet tons of people. So it like literally became family. Like I literally grew up as like a Christian in that conference. And, and so um, <clears throat> I think it was, yeah, during those years where I was like, oh yeah, like the covenant is, is th that's where I became covenant, I think. So uh, I'm babbling lots, but. And, and then it really stuck. Yeah. But then after that, I went and worked at, I mean, I've, I mean, that's only like the first half of my life, right? Like I just keep coming back to it. And even with all of our, you know, I mean, we're like any other kind of family or group, you know, we've got a lot of different folks, a lot of different opinions. And when I worked at covenant offices, I really got to experience even more, you know, more folks in our family and learn more about our movement and, and I still kept choosing <laughs> to be covenant and I still keep choosing to be covenant. And, and I actually like one of the reasons why I really loved, like, that's where I met you first, Jane was at covenant orientation. Like, and I was teaching mission and ministry of the covenant. Um, it's like help helping people or walking with people as they kind of discover the covenant and um, trying to like, I don't know be that person that can, or a person that can help people see that kind of who we are. Um, I don't know, I'm babbling now, but, um, but it was just fun to like meet new people and hear their impressions of us and, and both good and bad. And then figure out like, well, what does that look like for us to live into that and try and be, be who we say we, who we are and um, show people that too. Whether somebody found us through like church planting, because there's people who like literally go looking for a denomination and then they find us because they like what they see like on the website. But then there's other folks who are more like me. They kind of met someone or um, started attending a church. And then, um, and then the more they discover, the more they, um, they feel like they're at home. Like I hear over and over again from people who like they found the covenant, however they found it. And they say like, I was always covenant and I just didn't know it. Like I've heard that from so many people. Um, 
And I think it is because of our um, determination to kind of keep the main thing, the main thing, like, uh, you know, we have these affirmations that kind of, and our centered set uh, theology that allows people from a wide variety, you know, coming from all different kinds of Christian backgrounds to feel at home and, and feel like they can have a place. And, and so I did, I heard, I'm trying to, I couldn't tell you exactly how many times, but I heard it over and over again from people that they they were just covenant, but they didn't know it. And and I think that that is a testimony to sort of like how we are. And then people do they like the the family feel or the relationalness or you know those different kinds of things. But I think it's it once once we are able, if people are able to get over the like super Swedish whatever, <laughs> um, then then they start to see themselves in our movement. And I think that's helpful. Like, I mean, I, I grew up in the covenant. I, I like my last name is Carlson. I'm from Minnesota, but like, we aren't super covenant um, or like, I didn't grow up in that. Um, so I think some people think I'm a super insider, but I'm, I'm pretty new. <laughs> um, and so I like to think of myself as a person that can model that like, Oh yeah, no, the covenant is for everyone who, you know, feels like they want to make it their home. So I came to the covenant because of faithful people who, you know, invited people to church. Like I found out later, it's a crazy, like one of those small world covenant stories. So I'd been working at covenant offices for two or three years, I think, when Lana Heinrich, who was my boss, also from Minnesota, we drove back to Minnesota together for Christmas. And so my dad picked me up at her mom's place and was like, hey, I once knew a person with the last name Heinrich, like, huh? And I was like, dad, whatever. Come on. It's not, <laughs> you don't know them. Fine. Whatever. So we went and did Christmas, yada, yada. And then when he dropped me off again, he kind of was like, I really, you know, Heinrich, like I knew somebody with that name. And I was like, again, dad, bleh, bleh. like you're, it's not that small world. Well, we were driving Lana and I back to Chicago and my dad phones and he said, Sally, ask Lana if she knows Denny Heinrich. And she was like, that's my dad. And he was like, oh, we used to work together. You know, and, and he, he went to First Covenant St. Paul, didn't he? Because he used to invite me to church when we worked together. And so this, this was when I was like a baby. And so then Lana phoned her dad and was like, he's like, oh, yeah, I remember him. And he had these little baby twins and his life was crazy. And I just thought, I just thought he needed church. <laughs> I just thought he needed Jesus. Um, and so I was inviting him, but he wasn't interested. But I realized, so we were like, Lana was like, oh my gosh, we like our parents knew each other. And she's like, I think I met you or at least your brother or something. But because she was like maybe in high school while when I was a baby. And but anyway, so it was like this small world that suddenly like we're working together. And also her dad was like, oh, like I had invited him to church, but I never think he thought he actually did it. But it was like this small seed planted so that like eight, about eight years later, when the neighbors invited him to this other covenant church, he already had kind of heard good things about this part, you know, this kind of this group, covenant, the covenant church or whatever. So he thought he would check it out. and. And then, you know, how many years later I'm working at Covenant offices? Like, I mean, it's like this weird, like small world little thing, but, but that's, but that's always been 
this kind of thing in the back of my mind as a pastor or even before I was going to be a pastor as just a person who like wanted to be active in my church is like we have no idea what our what will come of those invitations like and um we don't we don't know what seeds we plant that will you know sprout much later you know and so it's the faithfulness of these regular people who invited their neighbor their coworker to church that you know that blossomed later and whether whether we had gone to a covenant church or another church you know um the fact that people were inviting him into relationship with jesus was like really important we are here today with jonathan wilson historian and longtime covenant pastor he currently is a pastor at salem covenant church in rural pennock west central minnesota John, I also saw recently in the Covenant Companion that you all just celebrated your 150th anniversary. Seriously amazing. Um, Amen. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, about you? Um, And yeah, tell us more about yourself. So the congregation Salem Covenant Church uh, was originally in the Synod of Northern Illinois. And its uh, pastor was one of those that was ordained by Charles Anderson. And so that was when this was a Swedish mission of the General Synod of the Lutheran Church in America. So uh, it dates back to that. We are not the absolute oldest covenant church in the United States, but we're close. And so it's it's fun. It was much fun to be part of that experience um, 150 years in. One of the uh, more famous pastors of this church is Nils Frickman, the covenant hymn writer. And he was here. He was actually uh, Salem Covenant's longest serving pastor. And I'll have maybe a little bit more to say. I wanted to bring that up because I might have something to say about the Moravian impact on hymnody uh, today. So with Nils Frickman, we have someone who helps to bring that forward into our current discussions. Uh, Other than that, let's see. I've been here in rural Pennock, living in the parsonage 400 feet away from the church. Uh, for three years and three months. And I have uh, my wife, Amy, we're celebrating 29 years in uh, May. And I have two daughters who are uh, still with us at home. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much for being here today. Um, You gave us a little taste about what we're going to talk about. You mentioned the term Moravianism term maybe many of us don't know much about. So can you tell us like how how did Moravians influence the covenant? Um, beginning with the origins to start off, who were they? Uh, it is such a, a pleasure to be a part of this podcast. I want to thank you very much for the invitation. And, um, you know, my being able to celebrate a church's 150th birthday uh, isn't isn't my sole qualification as a historian. Um, I uh, do have uh, a PhD in historical studies from LSTC, and as part of that, I uh, wrote a book on uh, German pietists in America, 
and uh, devoted some uh, chapters to that, to the Moravian experience in uh, early America. And that book is called um, God on Three Sides, German Pietists at War in uh, 18th Century America. So that came out in 2019 um, as a consequence of my studies in uh, immigrant pietism. Uh, I have really uh, taken an interest in the history of the Moravians and to what extent uh, they had an influence on the covenant's formation and then uh, what and how we can um, continue to be inspired by them today. And so let's just uh, start then with where your question was uh, uh, asking, um, who were the Moravians? Where did they come from? And um, so the, um, I'm going to try to keep it kind of a short answer. Um, the Moravians were actually uh, a Protestant faith before there was Protestantism. So uh, that's one way to take a look at, uh, think about who they are. A hundred years before Luther sparked the Reformation, there was a Bohemian priest and university scholar uh, named John Huss. He was burned at the stake by Catholic rulers for saying some of the same things that Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin would start saying again over a hundred years later. One issue for Huss was that the word of God ought to be the supreme rule for the church. Another issue was the role of the individual conscience. And still another issue was whether lay people could take the communion wine or not. For generations by then, the Catholic Church had set the rule that lay people could only receive Christ in the bread of communion and that the wine was reserved for the priests. Followers of John Huss are called Hussites. After Huss was martyred in 1415, the kingdom of Bohemia sank into civil war, and much of that had religion as its cause. The Czech-speaking people included Moravians and Bohemians, and that comes from a time in the early Middle Ages when there was an independent kingdom of Moravia. Well, once the dust settled from that civil war, the Catholics got their king in Bohemia, but some of the Hussite opponents were appeased by a special Czech dispensation from the Pope to receive the wine in communion. However, there was still another Hussite group. This was a group of pacifists. They lived together in community, and they called themselves the Unity of the Brethren. They did not fold back into the Czech dispensation of Roman Catholicism. Instead, they continued to be a Hussite church with their own bishops. Fast forward on beyond the Protestant Reformation into the early 1600s, and we come to the Thirty Years' War, which also, by the way, got started in Bohemia. And after all of that, in 1648, the unity of the brethren were no longer tolerated in the kingdom of Bohemia. They were driven into exile, where they established their community in Poland, or unity of the brethren adherents went underground. 
Now, as part of all the settlements that followed the Thirty Years' War with the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, there was territory that was stripped away from the Kingdom of Bohemia, and it was added to the Kingdom of Saxony. Now, that's interesting because Saxony was a Protestant kingdom. How does it win the Thirty Years' War in this way? Well, it was rewarded for its loyalty to the Catholic German emperor throughout the Thirty Years' War. So an imperial count of Saxony was then given Upper Lusatia as a possession. Uh, You see, by the mid-1600s, feudalism was still alive and well throughout Europe. The aristocratic family took the name Zinzendorf over time, and the heir of Zinzendorf, Nicholas Ludwig, was a young graduate of Wittenberg University with a law degree who had become part of Saxony's government. This young count had come to Christ at a very young age and was prayerful and precocious as a child. So at the age of 10, his aunt sent him to the Franca boarding school in Halle with a letter asking those dour pietists, August Hermann and others, to straighten this child out. Well, despite the severe treatment, what the young Zinzendorf really picked up from the Franca boarding school was a passionate desire to make an impact in global mission. Then in 1722, a group of Bohemian fugitives appeared on his estates in Upper Lusatia. They explained that they were part of the Hussite church, the unity of the brethren that had been driven underground. So with some of their writings to guide him, Zinzendorf broke ground for a community of on his own estate, and they all together named it Herrenhut. To the end of his life, Zinzendorf was the chief patron for the renewed unity of the brethren, which is the official name of this fellowship. In common usage at the time, they were variously called Zinzendorfers after their patron, or they were called Herrenhuters after the town of their origin, or they were called Moravians after their ethnic Czech origins. Well, this community of Herrenhut began to attract various other disaffected Protestants, especially from pietistic streams, some of them mystical in orientation and radical in outlook from throughout Germany. Meanwhile, Zinzendorf considered himself a Lutheran by faith and was leavening the community towards the mainstream of Protestant thought, at least in some things, especially as they were oriented to the writings of Martin Luther. Then in 1727, a revival broke out, and from that, the Moravians caught the vision for becoming a missionary people. Zinzendorf was able to live his dream. By his death in 1760, he was broke. He had invested all of his worldly aristocratic wealth into the cause of the gospel, and the Moravian mission was truly global in outreach, north and south, east and west. Wow, that was such a great overview. Thank you so much. Um, So we have a better picture of who the Moravians were, but what did they believe? So what concerns us as covenanters today is what the renewed unity of the brethren came to fuse together in terms of their own origins in pacifism and community life, plus the beliefs and mysticism of their patron, 
Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Now, Zinzendorf carried forward many of the aspects of community discipline from the Czech days of the unity of the brethren in terms of shared economy and communitarian living. He also allowed for his renewed unity to operate as a separate church by locating a bishop in Poland who was a brethren bishop who could ordain ministers there in Herrenhut. And he received as his own conviction the pacifism of these Moravian brethren. But he used his leverage to catechize the renewed unity in mainstream Protestant theology and in Lutheran orthodoxy, at least as, as Zinzendorf understood it. And then he also shaped the renewed unity with his zeal for mission. And I will have more to say about the communitarian aspect and the missional aspects later. But first, as we try to own the Moravian influence and the covenant's emergence and how that influence can inspire us today, it is important to note that Zinzendorf also caused problems in his own time. Zinzendorf influenced the renewed unity with his own speculative theology and mystical experiences. While he was alive, the Moravians, with the mystical and speculative aspects of their theology, combined with their closed communities, often came under suspicion for deviating either from the laws of society or the laws of the church. For example, Zinzendorf had a view that the Holy Spirit was female and that the Trinity is the divine holy family with the Holy Spirit being the mother of Jesus. This led to other speculations, which in large part, I believe, derive from an error in grammar and exegesis that confuses gender forms in language construction with actual biological functions. Some of his speculations became even more problematic and led to problems and misunderstandings in the late 1740s, a time that's called the sifting time. He apologized for his own role in the confusions of that period and renounced some of his speculations that had fed into that. I hope to have more to say about that as well uh, later on if we have time. After his death in 1760, the Moravian leadership steered the church more firmly into the Protestant mainstream. But most important for the covenant, though, was that Zinzendorf emphasized the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ, the grace of God effected in Christ's blood, and the joy of knowing that we are loved by God, cleansed and forgiven by God, and at peace with God. This emphasis is seen very early after the Herrenhut revival in the Moravian hymns that emphasize the power of grace in the blood and the joy of a loving relationship that has restored the conscience to peace with God. Okay, that language at the end sounds very covenant. That sounds familiar to us. Um, is there more, like, can you get further into how they shaped, like, what was the influence on the covenant in those early days? Uh, certainly. Um, I think I'm going to, to deviate a, a little bit from... Um, maybe the 
what's considered, you know, step-by-step the history of the covenant and uh, look more broadly in a sense um, in one dimension uh, as I, as I answer that. So um, one story that really resonates with many Americans from many backgrounds is the story of the conversion of John Wesley. Now, why am I talking about him? He's the founder of the Methodist Church. Well, he did have a hand in the awakenings of the 1700s with his colleague George Whitfield, both in the American colonies and in the British Isles, and many people in the covenant today who boast of heritage and lineage that is not Swedish or Scandinavian have John Wesley standing somewhere in the background of their faith heritage. That's true, for example, uh, of, of me. I don't have any Scandinavian heritage, um, but I have Methodism on my mom's side and on my dad's side uh, through his mother, uh, my Welsh ancestry. Now, it would also be true um, of covenanters today who then find a connection or overlap or influence in their faith heritage as it traces back through, for example, the African Methodist Episcopal Denomination, or the AME. Now, what is important about John Wesley's awakening uh, in assurance in the grace of Christ alone is that he came to that experience first by being influenced by Moravians. And then that moment of awakening happening for him at a meeting of Moravians in London. In terms of the covenant's historical connection to John Wesley, sort of institutionally, we also find that that runs through Sweden, where in 1830, a Methodist preacher named George Scott headed over to Sweden, and God used him to stoke the embers of the Spirit's flame into revival fire. So I've started there, hoping to take sort of a very broad picture of who the covenant is today, and and to see that for so many of us, uh, we can thank the Moravians for John Wesley, right? Um, But in terms of the covenant's positions theologically and priorities, that's still, you know, a step removed. So um, there is actually a more direct line between Swedish adherence to Moravian faith and the revivals in Sweden that started in the 1840s. And that's important when we speak of the early years of the covenant in America, because the covenant founders in 1885 were all immigrants from Sweden. They were all Lutheran in theological orientation, but they were revivalists in calling out souls to be awakened personally in Christ, and they were pietists in their convictions that God's grace is not without effect, but that as vessels of God's Spirit, the awakened believer bears the fruits of faith. They had discovered this revival experience while still in Sweden, and they were intentional about bringing that experience with them as they emigrated. 
So as we mentioned, thanks to George Scott, revivalism had strengthened in power and force in the 1840s and came to be steered under the leadership of a magazine editor named Carl Olaf Rosenius. But Scott had not created the spark in a vacuum. The Covenant historian Carl Olson, writing back in 1962, stated that Moravian missionaries in the mid-1700s had been able to work around the royal edict that banned conventicles in 1728, those small group pietistic Bible studies that the royal edict said, no more, can't be done. Well, these Moravian missionaries were able to work around that because they would always seek the cooperation and get the cooperation of local Church of Sweden pastors first. And anything they did would come under the auspices of that uh, Church of Sweden pastor. And so this led to hundreds of small Moravian groups. Really, we can think of them as small group Bible studies. And they were all over the landscape of Sweden. There were hundreds of them. Now, we can only actually number the Swedish Moravian adherents in the hundreds, but they were pervasive. And then that made their hymnals pervasive too. A first edition published in 1743 and a second edition in 1778. So in the early 1800s, as English-speaking evangelicals of various denominations undertook work in Sweden, they found this network already, and it was extremely beneficial and supportive of their efforts. By the time George Scott arrived in 1830, there were already publication societies for Bibles and evangelistic tracts. A Swedish Lutheran pastor who was a Moravian adherent and member of these tract societies, was Anders Rosenius, the father of Carl Olaf Rosenius. Recently, an article was published by Schiel Soderberg, translated by Dean M. Appel for the journal Currents in Theology. This article details the impact of the Swedish Moravians on the Swedish revival, that in turn influenced the form of pietistic religious experience that the Swedish immigrants to the United States and Canada brought with them. Soderberg describes some of the specific activities of Anders Rosenius as a Swedish Moravian. Then after George Scott arrived in 1830, he not only was preaching to the English workers in Swedish mills, he was also retained to be the chaplain for the British embassy in Stockholm. That, in turn, introduced Scott to the elites of Sweden's society. One of these elites was Sweden's justice minister, which would be something like the attorney general. And this justice minister was Count Matthias Rosenblatt. And he was a Moravian adherent and member of those evangelical publication societies. When Scott formed the Swedish Mission Society in 1835, Rosenblad was its first chairperson. 
the Moravians kept the embers alive in Sweden. They fostered an environment that could welcome a more widespread revival. And by saying that, I cite Carl Olson. I'm continuing uh, a statement that he made in 1962. Many covenant historians talk about the hard time that Scott had in cooperating with uh, Swedish authorities. What we find then in the Moravian Rosenblatt is the answer as to how it is that Scott was able to stay in Sweden for as long as he did and get the stuff going that he got going. 12 years of productive work, which led to the magazine Pietisten, which Carl Olaf Rosenius took over. Uh, by that time that Scott left Sweden in 1842 and Rosenius was uh, editing Pietisten, the revival was spreading across Scandinavia, and its praise songs were Moravian hymns. You mentioned earlier about community life. How have the Moravians um, impacted us in that respect? Can you say more about that? So there are things that the Moravians experimented in, in terms of uh, community life, that they were actually living in shared economy situations before the Anabaptists, for example. So they were really drawing on, uh, on models that would have uh, maybe some uh, kinship spiritually to the monasteries of Europe, except that, uh, that they would allow for um, Marrieds and families uh, in their communities as well, and but they would have um, shared economy communities, and they would have dormitories for uh, for single women uh, under uh, their chaplain, who would be a female. They would have uh, dormitories for for single men. They would have um, dormitories for marrieds, uh, depending on the town. In um, in some towns uh, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, they actually segregated the husbands and the wives, and they had a special room that uh, that could be reserved uh, for conjugal visits. Um, so, it, so they were really, you know, very particular uh, and on, on these things. Um, but the idea of of shared economy was um, something that uh, that they carried over from the Czech origins. But then they applied it to uh, being able then to support uh, missionaries. And so they devoted their economic engines uh, to being able then to, to support uh, missionaries in work abroad. Now, that is sort of one dimension of the community life that they practice. Not all Moravians and not all Moravian adherents lived in those communities, even during the time of Zinzendorf. And after the time of Zinzendorf, those communities gradually um, uh, faded away from, from um, those kinds of uh, private and closed disciplined communities to become more mainstream. So, for example, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, today is just a city in the United States. Um, but then there's another dimension to um, to community as well, and that is how um, there was accountability and mutuality with each other. 
um, whether one was living in a, uh, a private uh, community setting or was uh, a missionary or was an adherent, but uh, living out in, in a mainstream uh, kind of situation, uh, there was still a sense that you know, we're, we have a shared purpose, we have a shared identity, and with that, there comes accountability. Um, there are certain priorities that uh, one adopts uh, when, when one becomes um, a, a follower in this movement. And so the issue of discipline is something that, um, that really came up um, in a very difficult situation that happened in the late 1740s in that sifting time. And in the confusions of that period, um, which involved Zinzendorf's own son, Christian, um, there needed to be an intervention of the Moravian church leadership, and uh, there need, things needed to be addressed. But the, uh, the purpose of addressing Christian and uh, various others who had followed Christian um, on his path of confusion was uh, the purpose was to be restorative, not punitive. Uh, the, the purpose was to create pathways um, to, to reintegrate um, the erring back into community uh, rather than um, to, to simply expel and, and wash one's hands of it. So they, they took a much more uh, difficult path um, rather than just cutting relationships short. Well, clearly you have erred in this. You have, you have strayed from um, uh, practice uh, and, and the understood uh, doctrine of um, Christian teaching. And so, you know, we'll, we'll kick you out. And I think that that is something that uh, has over time influenced the uh, covenant church um, from, from our very beginning and continues to influence it now. Uh, when we uh, hear about and speak about processes of discipline and accountability that take years and not weeks, that sets the covenant apart. It can be so easy to just declare this or that and, and let the alienation become final without any kind of redress or conversation. But in, in the covenant, the processes uh, very often stretch and stretch and stretch to the frustrations sometimes of those involved. Um, but it's considered a better alternative than, um, than simply resorting to um, a, a legalistic uh, in or out, um, one and done, you know, zero tolerance kind of policy. Um, the Moravians, I, could not, I cannot imagine what Zinzendorf would think of, you know, so-called zero tolerance today. Um, but that said, the accountabilities are still there. And part of what happened in that 15th time is that Zinzendorf, the elder, Nicholas Zinzendorf, was able to connect 
his own articulations of some doctrine to his son's confusion. He saw that it was his own leadership, his own discipleship that had actually led Christian into some conclusions that were errant. And so the elders in Zindorf also led the way in repentance. So it's, it's about being a repenting and restorative uh, community. And not all Moravians stayed with it after the sifting time. Some left the Moravians because um, they did not want to be recalled into a former accountability. They preferred the, uh, the um, new doctrines proposed by Christian Zinzendorf, and so they were not interested in coming back into um, you know, the mainstream of, of what the Moravians stood for. There were others who just found the whole thing so upsetting that uh, any such thing could happen that they left. So do we have things that we can learn from 1749? I'll leave that up to you. The Moravians dared to be neutral during the American Revolutionary War. Why is that a good thing for covenant people? Well, I think all of us would say, yeah, the Patriot cause was, was, uh, was maybe a pretty good one. You know, um, many of us would say that. I think that there's a lot of texture to that history. And the more that I got into the history and what lay behind the American Revolution, the more I have come to appreciate the posture of the Moravians. Their town was taken over by the Continental Army because its dormitories were so big and well-constructed the the Continental Army took it over for hospitals, barracks, and those kinds of things. So they put it to the uses of the Continental Army. The Moravians did not resist that. The Moravians uh, helped by doing things like assisting the wounded. So Moravians continued to live in the community to nurse and tend to the wounded of the Continental Army. That was a different posture from the Quakers, who were radically nonviolent, neutral, but who would refuse to, uh, to let uh, a Quaker wagon be used by a wounded soldier to cart wounded soldiers, because that was aiding the war effort. So you can see the different kind of posture that Moravians were taking versus another pacifist group like the Quakers. It was an engaged neutrality. It was a neutrality that was um, generous. It was not a let's dig our head in the sands neutral posture. It was an engaged and generous neutrality, which refused to buy into the grandiose claims of the two combatant factions. And maybe we have a lot to learn from that too. Generous neutrality. That is so 
That's so interesting. That's such, yeah, that you gave, you gave us quite a bit to chew on. Thank you so much. Um, as we close our interview today, we always want to ask our guests, you know, especially in this topic today, like what we're learning from the Moravians, um, what invitation do you sense God has for us from this lens? And I know that you've already dropped several seeds. So is there, are there any other (laughs) invitations that you want to make? Oh, but I think, I think that there is, that there is one because I understand that uh, folks might, might assume different things from what I've said about um, the, the whole business of, uh, of uh, restorative discipline that's going to be heard in different ways. Um, And, and what I've said about the covenant is actually doing that. And I think is doing it well, uh, isn't, might not be so well heard, but, uh, and then the, the piece too, about neutrality, neutrality in our highly polarized world, um, can also be just feel like a little bit of a risk, uh, for, for people to articulate. Um, and so what I would like to say is by way of encouragement, how we can be inspired by still another Moravian example is by their priority for mission and that they steered their local Moravian communities to the support of mission endeavor around the world and did so at a rate where they were putting missionaries into the field uh, at in the same real numbers as denominations that were 10,000 times their number. 10,000 times their strength, yet the same number of missionaries in raw numbers in the field, which means that proportionately, the Moravian mission was all out of proportion with the rest of the Protestant church. The the covenant has a long history, Glenn Palmer put it this way, of of, um, fighting above our class, uh, weight class, okay? And I would like to say, let us keep that going. The Moravians are a great example of the whole mission of the church, of partnering um, redemptive uh, mission with the good news of the gospel. Um, and let's, uh, let's be inspired by that Moravian outlook of the 1700s, early 1800s, where they were, they were well out of proportion, of all proportion, for um, bringing that to the world and shining the light to the world. And there may be some who, can, who might be inspired by Zinzendorf's example. He put everything into it. He, uh, a, German arist- a German noble, an aristocrat, died without leaving a legacy for his heirs. But what did he leave? He left the legacy of the gospel around the world that continues to influence and inspire us today. So that is part of what it can mean for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God by having given everything away. He wouldn't tell you that that he had earned his way into salvation. He was too busy rejoicing in the wounds and blood of Jesus Christ and its power alone. Zinzendorf was a grace alone, evangelical. Let's be that in our mission to the world. 
Thank you, friends, for listening to this episode of the Love the Cove podcast. And if you'd like to share your story of when you became covenant, please send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye now.